everyone doing welcome to the 10th edition i don't know it's 10th edition welcome to the 10th episode of the citizen curious podcast i am your host ryan lee we are broadcasting live and direct for the first time ever from martha's vineyard we are not in new york city this is the first time we've taken the show on the road i flew in yesterday afternoon spent the night for a special podcast project hope to be able to talk about that soon immediately had a lobster roll, went to a place called The Lookout in the Oak Bluffs area. They put the most obscene amount of lobster in this roll. It was pretty pricey, but definitely amazing bang for your buck. When you come to a place like this, you just stick to the basic food groups. Three hours later, had an early dinner, ate another lobster roll, not messing around. Um, so the time of this recording, it is September 30th. 2020 so that would be the morning woo woo so that would be the morning after the election i don't know about you i woke up feeling refreshed energized (laughs) optimistic about the direction of our country you know the civility demonstrated by our incumbent president was you know so refreshing It's nice to know that despite their political differences, the two candidates can hold a congenial, non-hostile debate. Obviously, I'm fucking full of shit. I don't know about you, but that was was stress-inducing. Made me... I I didn't even drink yesterday or last night. I had a couple beers in the afternoon. I didn't even drink last night. And I got a headache. Caused me to stress heat. Ended up eating a block of this Rocky Road fudge that I got from this place called Murdoch's Fudge. Then after, I went back to the corner store, got a pack of Skittles. So I was just, I was just stress eating galore. I woke up this morning with obviously a sugar hangover, a hangover of some sort. Ugh, some sort. It's just heavy. There's a heavy atmosphere. That's what Trump wants. That what what he thrives off of, and. Uh, you just gotta accept this wave, come back fighting. You know, I'm not moving to Berlin. I'm not moving to Portugal. Where else would I go? Some place that has a beach. I don't know. New Zealand. I'm not moving to any of those places yet. I'm gonna vote. I'm gonna do what I can. But uh, this is all hands on deck. I read that Thomas Friedman article this morning. Freaked me out, as it should rightfully freak out everyone. We are on the precipice right now. Uh, gonna research, do what else I can. Phone bake, suit up, glove up, mask up, drive people to polling centers. I might even vote twice, fuck it. Whatever it takes. Um, and then beyond that, you know, I just gotta be open. I gotta be there for my mom. I gotta be there for my family. Try to be more open, keep on keeping on. So look, now I want to talk about the two guests that are coming on. Very pleased, very, very, very pleased to announce my guest, Amber Munninger, Mundinger, Amber Mundinger, and Tamara Deke of the Bring Music Home 
project. We were put in touch through our good buddy, Noah Levy. Shout out to Noah. The reason why we were connected is because we've been having parallel conversations with a lot of people involved in the music business and discussing the impact of COVID on the overall industry. Um, what's great about Amber and Tamara, along with their partner, Kevin Condon, who unfortunately wasn't able to make it, is that they've really focused on the impact of COVID on the live music business. Sorry, I'm, I'm at my hotel and there's construction or something going on next door, but that's how we roll. There's a number of live venues that have been closed. Some estimates believe that up to 90% of the music venues, venues that exist are gonna close eventually. So the numbers are just staggering. So Bring Music Home has brought together a team of photographers, producers, designers, and they've documented the collective live experience and showcase really the individuals behind these venues, the people that work at these places, and with a focus on live music venues across North America. They've done interviews across 30 plus cities, over 150 venues. Give me a second here, I'm just gonna pull up the list. I'm gonna look at the cities that I'm familiar with that they're focusing on. Okay, so, I mean, these are museums, these are institutions. You've got New York City, the Apollo Theater, the Beacon Theater, the Blue Note, Brooklyn Steel. I saw Wilco there, Forest Hills, that's an amazing outdoor venue out in the New York area. King's Theater, it's an absolutely gorgeous, newly renovated theater, I think that opened in the last three to five years. You know, the Music Hall of Williamsburg, Rough Trade, Webster Hall. Let's go to SF. Bimbos, that's a Boscad club. Saw Steve Malkmus there. Um, Great American Music Hall. The Fillmore, of course. Saw one of my very first shows there. Saw Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers there during... Well, I saw them twice there, and they did a couple residencies there. I saw Porno for Pyros there when I was in eighth grade. That was one of my first concerts. The Fox Theater, the Saloon, the Warfield. Austin, Antones, Barracuda, Emos, Stubbs. Saw one of my favorite shows there, Monsters of Folk, about a decade ago. I mean, Nashville. Third and Lindsley, Cannery Row, Exit Inn, The Basement East, The Bluebird. Like these places are institutions. They are museums unto themselves. People, places that people pay to go absorb culture and to connect with one another. The Bluebird is, it's on the list of things to do in Nashville. You go get your spicy chicken, you go to the Bluebird, you tour the, the Country Music Hall of Fame. You know, there's not much else to do in Nashville besides that. I mean, there's plenty to do there, but you know what I'm trying to say. Uh, the Ryman, it's, you know, the place is a church. These are very important places. They foster live music, they foster artists. You know, they're pieces of real estate that are woven into the fabric of these cities and these towns. And so um, the project is, excuse me, the project is going to result in a coffee table book, beautiful photos, interviews. They're gonna be doing a podcast series, a video series, um, they've also had local artists in some of these cities create amazing posters. You can actually go to their website, bringmusichome.com, purchase one of the posters. You can purchase it through the store on their Instagram, at bringmusichome. And uh, you know, majority of the proceeds are going towards NEVA, National Independent Venue Association, 
focused on releasing, excuse me, raising relief funds for these venues. And, um, you know, they're doing the thing. They're doing their thing. They're doing their part, I think, as music fans. You know, and, and one of the things that I really respect out of them is I compare the efforts that I have or that I've made with just producing each one of these podcasts on my own. I'm doing this by myself, but you're coordinating with the talent. You're coordinating with lots of folks. There's lots of outreach. I can't imagine the amount of work that these two amazing women uh, have done to put this all together in basically the last six months. I mean, they've got, they're going to have a coffee, coffee table book coming out soon. And, you know, this is just a true labor of love. They're putting in the time, the effort, they're coming from a place of passion, looking forward to seeing the book, hearing the podcast, and it's going to be evergreen because they're going to be able to go to different countries. Uh, really enjoyed my chat with them. I think you will too. One note is that if you hear a snoring noise, or like a vacuum noise. That's Amber's bulldog taking a nice afternoon nap, as he should. And uh, it was really just great to learn about what they're up to. So without further ado, here's my interview with Amber and Tamara from the Bring Music Home Project. both so much for coming on the pod and uh thank you to and a shout out to the wonderful noah levy for the wonderful introduction yes 100 percent Noah's the best mr hollywood right now out there just (laughs) putting his projects together i know i love it sent me a little note yesterday who's with another mutual friend they were all masked up and said hi (laughs) awesome amazing amazing well very excited to have you on because I think that we've been having parallel conversations about the impact of COVID on the music industry. I've had a conversation with Jay Sweet, who's the producer of the Newport Folk Festival. So getting the perspective of, you know, someone who organizes a music festival every year and runs it as a nonprofit. And so he certainly felt the impact of this, you know, very acutely. They had to cancel this year. And Fingers crossed, knock on wood. Um, Hopefully they'll be able to put it on next year. And then I've also talked to Sean Tillman, Harmar's superstar, and, you know, just understood what he's up to from the artist perspective and how it's impacted his life. And he was actually out on tour when this whole thing went down, when the country went into lockdown mode. And would love to hear um, from you because uh, you're certainly focusing on uh, a different area of the impact of COVID, but you have a unique lens into a peek behind the scenes of what it's like to put on a concert and are focusing on the people behind the venues and the venues themselves. So we'd love to hear just a little bit about Bring Music Home and, and what you're up to and what your focus is. Sure. Uh, Tamara, do you want me to kick it off? Go ahead, kick yeah. it off. Um, so Bring Music Home is a photography book Um, podcast and film project that provides both short-term and long-term relief um, to, you know, what you were just mentioning to independent venues and to the people behind them. And really the project was started in March, you know, right as uh, the pandemic was hitting really heavily here in the U S and 
Um, we were going on lockdown here and I'm based in New York City, um, you know, and Tamara's in Austin. We were starting to really kind of feel the full effects and see everything shutting down from a music perspective. And so really, ultimately, it was three friends and colleagues in the industry coming together, um, you know, just over a conversation to say, somebody should be documenting this. This is, you know, like, kind of, you know, unfathomable that this is happening right before our eyes. Um, and we're literally watching the music and entertainment landscape shift completely. Um, you know, I uh, am the CEO of, uh, you know, a company that produces an Emmy nominated TV series. Tamara's a music producer. Kevin, our other co-founder, is a music photographer. So we all felt the impact, you know, kind of holistically in many different ways. And um, yeah, like right after we kind of said it out loud and all agreed to it, uh, we kicked off kind of in earnest and um, started talking to other friends who are music photographers and producers in the industry and started with um, the idea of documenting six cities, uh, 10 to 12 venues in each city, um, and at least two people behind each of those venues, a venue owner, operator, GM, and then a very long-standing employee, which could be really anyone that was important and impactful that venue, you know, a bouncer, a booker, a head of production, the bartender, um, and then where it made sense to have an artist involved in those conversations. And long story short, it kind of quickly went from um, six cities to 30, uh, and we've covered 200 plus venues, 375 people where we've done portraiture and interviews with them. Um, around the history of their space, what they're going through right now, and what they hope for really for the future. And then we started Bring Music Home before the National Independent Venue Association had formed. And we were very, you know, lucky and happy and fortunate, you know, in, you know, in many ways in a really hard time to have them, you know, come together and become our partner. And so um, we have a poster relief uh, portion of the project, which um, all of those funds of the sales of those individual pieces of artwork go to Neva's Emergency Relief Fund. And then we have a long-term relief plan with the podcast and book and docu-series. So it's, um, you know, I think it's, you know, a couple colleagues and friends in music came together and, um, and then we were joined by a whole band of, <laughs> of other friends who really understood what we were trying to do and felt the sense of urgency that we needed to tell really the stories of the unsung heroes of, you know, of music, the people that you don't normally see on center stage. So hopefully that's helpful. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And a lot of people, I think that a lot of people wanted to help, but maybe Tamara, you want to tackle this one. What compelled you to really dive into this? Because to start something off like this is a true labor of love. So what is it about you and maybe your partnership with Amber that made you want to get the ball rolling? Yeah, it's a great question. I think probably at the beginning, it was that we were all kind of reeling from the impact of the pandemic. Um, being based here in Austin, I have a uh, music agency that that you know was uh, ready to produce three separate events for South by Southwest in Austin and obviously you know in many ways we in Austin I feel kind of felt the stings of the impact of the pandemic early on um, it was almost like a somebody called it a canary in the coal mine effect and I, I don't disagree I think it kind of set the pace for how real this thing was really becoming and how rapidly it was actually taking hold um, and 
you know, I think that we felt kind of helpless at the time. Like, what can we do? How can we possibly do something that is going to make us feel, you know, better about this kind of, you know, very difficult situation that we were all facing. And so when we got together and started talking about this project, it was an absolute no brainer. Um, I had already started talking to some creatives in the state of Texas for an article that I was writing anyway. And so I, I really wanted to peel the layers back and go deeper to really understand how these very passionate people were navigating because you know at the beginning stages of the pandemic a lot of these venues were you know doing whatever they could getting hyper creative they were selling groceries um they were uh providing uh, the ability to order alcohol on delivery or curbside they were doing really interesting things with live stream i mean throughout this entire process it's been very interesting obviously to watch and see what what some of these you know music venues have done and so for me you know the reason that i felt compelled to work on this project now for six months right with you know, many months still ahead um, to, to really see it all across the finish line is because I am a music person first. I've been working in this industry for 20 years of my life um, in some capacity. And so it's, a, it's, I think, of the similar ilk that so many of these amazing people that we've both worked on on this project, as well as interviewed at these music venues, uh, it's, it's the same kind of life force that feeds us. We care deeply about this, this ecosystem that we're a part of no matter what role we play in it. And we recognize that if we have a voice, if we have tools, if, we ha if we're creative, if we're able, we should, we should be doing what we can to try to maintain it. And so I think that's where Amber, myself, and, and Kevin kind of, um, that's our nucleus, right? It's like, this is what we can do, and this is why we're going to do it. So, so that's really yeah. kept us um, you know, connected to it throughout the process. And I don't yeah. know if we knew how big it really would become. I think it was more like, we're determined to do this and it's coming from like, you know, the best place possible. And I think because it was coming from such a good place and because in many ways we're fortunate to, you know, all have an amazing network of colleagues who feel the same way, they all banded together very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like it's a true uh, community built on relationships. And in, for most people that are working in the business, if you're choosing to work in the music industry, it's probably a, a, a true labor of love. Totally. And, and also, yeah. we, we may be one of the, I mean, I feel so fortunate to have been making new contacts and friends throughout this process. You know, yeah, we started with people we knew. And then we quickly realized that this project needed to be you know, uh, we needed to cast a wide net that we wanted to meet people that we hadn't yet worked with. And we began to, you know, find uh, amazing photographers and producers in other cities and markets. And of course, we're meeting all these, you know, fantastic people that we're interviewing at the music venues too. So I feel really fortunate that through this time, we've all been stuck inside and, and, and unable to gather and to connect physically, virtually, remotely through the process of this project, we have been able to you know, create an enormous amount of, of friendship, I think, and, and connectivity and, and love really between these great people that we've met and worked with on this project. For sure. Amazing. And, and when you think about these music venues, um, you know, one thing that in particular putting on events, Jay Sweet, who's the producer of the Newport Folk Festival, you know, he talked about how 
Newport is that festival is not just about the music itself and the two days that there's tourist uh, revenue that comes in that the city can bank on and that it's about the larger community and there is a lot of economic benefit from putting on that festival it brings in tens of millions of dollars to the local community so and, you know, maybe you can talk about the impact of these venues economically and then culturally and and how important you think that they are to the fabric of our, you know, functioning societies. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think like, you know, from a cultural standpoint, these these venues are cultural institutions in and of themselves, even like the smallest of indie rock venues, you know, are kind of like where certain songs or genres of music really flourished. Um, you know, like I, I think like when you think about a place like Knitting Factory, you know, in Brooklyn, like that's probably known a lot more now for like punk and indie, but really kind of like helped cultivate hip hop. And there used to be like hip hop battles there and, you know, like amazing songs that came out of a space like that, that, you know, kind of now sit in the, the music history and ecosystem. I mean, and I think from an impact standpoint, I mean, South by Southwest is a great example, like to have a festival like South by, which is not just music, but, you know, music, tech, um, you know, kind of everything across the board, film, um, you know, that has the same impact as the Super Bowl coming into an economy, you know, and that's an annual piece that like, you know, funds people across the year that gives part-time jobs that really kind of supports the local economy. And so, you know, overall it's, you know, if, if venues don't get funding from Congress, I think, you know, it's devastating in so many ways, but to me, it's like you're losing pieces of culture that are really the fabric of all of these communities and that have their own really special, unique stories and memories. And, you know, I mean, the Capitol Theater just north of New York City is where you know Janis Joplin wrote one of her most favorite famous songs in a diner down the street and then performed it for the first time that night you know like the Grateful Dead played at the Capitol Theater 18 times in one year you know it was like one of their only two um, venues that they said captured the true heart of music I mean these are just like they're characters in and of themselves you know I think in many ways and 90% of venues, independent venues will close this year if they don't get relief, which is yeah. just mind blowing to me. That's insane. And I would add to that, you know, to carry on the Janis Joplin story, and then you look at somewhere like Threadgills in Austin, which has closed its doors. And Eddie Wilson, the owner of Threadgills would argue that perhaps COVID isn't responsible, but it was the straw that eventually broke the camel's back. You know, Janice played there many times um, during her career. You know, Austin is the live music capital of the world. And yeah. if 90% of the venues are set to close, we have 250 approximate venues in Austin. Mm -hmm. What is that going to leave us with? 20 venues? I mean, it's insane. And if we look at, just do a simple Google search, you know, look up what types of cultural investment into music during COVID other countries have made. Canada, uh, Madagascar, like all of these places right, are right. doing things. Germany, France, I, I, the UK, millions and sometimes billions of dollars have now been set aside to support the economy 
of music because they do not want to risk opening these music venues early and recognize the stress that this has caused the economy and therefore want to patron and take care of the arts because of the cultural elevation uh, that, it, that it frankly gives to, to, to their country, to their society, to their smaller communities. And we simply haven't done that in this country. And it's, yes. it's devastating. There's like two statistics that kind of like, or, you know, statements that kind of like stick in my mind on the regular basis. And one is that, you know, the value added by the arts and culture, um, you know, kind of community to the US economy, US economy is actually five times greater than the agricultural sector. So when you think about that and the impact, and that's like from the National Endowment for the Arts, they've, you know, that's from a study that they did, um, you know, that's, you know, kind of mind blowing, um, you know, in many ways. And then that venues this year um, are forecast to lose $9 billion of revenue for the rest of 2020. I mean, and these are just, you know, a lot of them are small, you know, mom and pop places that, you know, these people have started these places and, you know, founded them and worked there their entire lives. You know, yeah. these are families and ecosystems of families and employees. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that leads to my next question. And, and Tamara, you started to hit on this a little bit, but one lens that we're really looking at this through is how governments are responding and not necessarily reacting because I think it's more important and it's, it's more mature and thought out to respond versus react. Uh, at least that's what I try to do as an, as an adult. And um, look, this is a pandemic. It was unforeseen. It was, it was a complete surprise. But I know that, you know, Neva has been formed in response to this. And, um, and I'd love to know what is the status of discussions that you're both hearing because Tamara, you're down in Austin. I'm sure, I'm sure that you're getting a lot more attention uh, and pressure being put on the local governments down there and the national governments. But what is the government doing, if anything, to set aside budget dollars? Like, do you have any status updates on discussions between Schumer and, you know, or not, uh, but, but between McConnell and Pelosi about how some of these additional funds, which are going to be allocated for relief, are going to be set aside for the arts and for venues and museums? Like, any insights there about what the status of those talks are? Yeah, it's a great question. I wish I had a better answer to give you. What I know is that Schumer seems to be one of the loudest voices at the top of the pyramid, if you will, that has done some work and, and created some effort around bringing attention to uh, the, the, the bill that's sitting there effectively in Congress. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like what has happened, unfortunately, is that there have been so many other issues, many of which are obviously very important that have happened in the past six months, and many of which are absolutely not that important, that have unfortunately pushed this uh, into a corner. And it's, it's, it's obviously very sad. I think what we've seen a lot of, especially here in Austin, is that the local uh you know, music industry at large has tried to raise their voices within the community here to try to then make that sound crescendo and rise up to the federal level. Um, I know just last week, for example, there was a gathering on the Congress uh, steps here in Austin uh, to try to raise more awareness about the plight of, you know, what the venues are facing in terms of the rents that are due and no money coming in and lack of support 
Um, and I feel like the word that I'm receiving at least amongst uh, many people that we've interviewed here in Austin is that the local government also has not done enough. They've made it difficult. They've, they've made it a long, an elongated process to try to get access to cultural funding and things that are available in the arts. And then of course, uh, on the federal side, it, no one seems to be raising the issue. Um, and, you know, I think frankly, you know, if you look at what's been happening with unemployment and the, the lack of, of uh, clarity around that, as well as um, the relief funds that have come through, I mean, those have obviously been, you know, kicked around and messed with over the past several months as well. And no one seems to have a clear answer on those. So I, I don't feel great about the prospects of, of, of what's going to happen with this bill. And, and I think, um, you know, time is running out. That's, that's the main message that, that I seem to be getting from people that I'm speaking to. And, yeah. and, and, and the underlying issue. So I'm not, I'm certainly no expert. I don't work in the music business and I don't work in the restaurant business, but I know that with the restaurant business, that it's a very thin margin, you know, model of five to 10%. If you're lucky, that's kind of the, the band there. Now, what sort of uh, systemic issues has this brought to light other than the fact that there's no income coming because there's no shows to put on, but meaning I know that there is a tension between the independent venues and the also the corporate venues. So what are some of the other issues that this has brought to light in terms of just being one, you know, or just being an independent venue operator? I mean, I think, you know, one area is, you know, to your point, similar to like in, you know, the hospitality industry, the margins, you know, for venues are really low and a lot of that revenue comes from, uh, from beverage, you know, from bars and from food. And so if you're not having a lot of shows on a regular basis, then the revenue just isn't there, you know, along with the ticketing um, and everything else. So it's also just a very small margin. And I think what it showed is, you know, that there's a lot of things that, you know, we in the music industry, you know, and I think, you know, some people probably outside of the industry know that the the, the economy in music is very broken, you know, and there's a lot of issues with it across like many facets. But I think what this also showed is with independent venues, you know, they shouldn't be basically, you know, one step from homelessness because the margins are so low and something like this happens that's so cataclysmic that you don't expect it and you just don't have, you know, the resources or the funds, you know, in your bank account to be able to support it. Um, and then I think like the tension, you know, from my perspective between like corporate and indie is, you know, like deeper pockets, um, you know, more investment. Um, and also I think there's always kind of been this tension because everybody's fighting for the, the same shows, you know, a lot of times, um, you know, not necessarily for anything, but it just works easier. Like if an, if a tour is going through a certain set of cities and they do a show with an AEG or a Live Nation venue, um, which are also amazing venues, they they normally kind of stick with that AEG trail throughout many cities. And so the indies, you know, are fighting to kind of get, you know, placement with, with different tours and artists. Um, and then I think, you know, a lot of independent venues have been bought up by larger corporations. And that's like, you know, 
no fault to anybody because um, everybody needs to to make money and figure things out. But you know, I do think it's created quite a divide for sure. Um, and and the larger guys have been able to make a lot more money, you know, off of the the music economy for sure. And when you think about um, just what you've learned in terms of unforeseen issues or unforeseen um, problems that this that that the current that the industry is currently faced with. I would love to hear from both of you. What has been the most surprising thing that you've learned from this whole process? And I know it's ongoing, but would love to hear about that. I think one of the biggest things that maybe I had an inkling of for sure, but now I understand the 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 sort of magnitude of it is the impact that something like this is having on the mental health and wellness of the people within the music economy. I think that name an industry, you know, mental health and well-being are important in all industries. But when we look at the arts, which are, you know, we love a songwriter because he or she is vulnerable, because they're giving us a window into their psyche, because they're opening up their pain and their, their hopefulness and, and a closeness to their heart and sharing their words with us, right? And and to be that sensitive, to be that type of person also means that you are potentially, you know, more subjected to or, or, or susceptible to, um, you know, the impact of sadness and depression when things like this happen. And so I think that what it's shown me is that this, this world that we've been a part of, the arts, music specifically, it was already so fragile. And now that this has happened, it's making people, they're forced with choices that they, they, they weren't ready to make, right? Which are you know, choosing between continuing to pursue a career in music, whatever that might be, and feeding themselves, mm -hmm. truly feeding their families, paying their rent. And you know, that's, that's really sad and it's unfair because I think that you, know, you shouldn't have to choose between your, your heart's deepest emotional calling and doing what you feel inside of you is absolutely, you know, a, a part of who you are. Um, and, and, you know, still, you know, finding money to, to feed yourself or your family. Um, and so there's a larger issue, I think, that, that is starting to come to a head with the, the true impact on mental health and, and potentially some, some very real PTSD that people are suffering from this, you know, really substantial roller coaster emotionally that we've all been on over the past six months. Yeah, um, societal healing broadly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look at how much we've relied on and needed music to heal us during this time. When we think back to the beginning stages of the pandemic and people playing instruments on balconies, how how touching was that? How important was that? Right? It was truly what that culture, what that com what the community needed to help get them through this. And I think. You know, we all deeply miss attending shows, you know, speaking for myself, I, I miss seeing musicians on stage and hearing songs live, not through my computer screen. And so I know that it's, it's going to come back one day when I don't know what it will look like then. I also am not sure, but, you know, I think those, those are some of the things that, that I've realized at least um, during this time. Yeah. I mean, I would definitely like echo that. That's one of the main things that I've really, noticed and and been watching and seeing a lot and i think it kind of like two other things that tie to that are um 
you know, to Tamara's point, creatives have been getting us through this in many ways, emotionally. Um, you know, artists immediately were doing live streams and, you know, I do stories and everything else. And, you and know, art is a bomb. People forget it is the word that I've been using and heard others use is that it's a bomb. And yes. you have a heartbreak, you go through a tough time, you're sad, it's great today, you put on a particular song, it's a bomb. And, um, you know, now is certainly a time for us to try to provide a, a, a relief to them as well. 100%. And I think like, you know, I'm sure you experience like being here in New York City, you know, at seven o'clock opening your windows and I live in the Upper West Side and there's a lot of like performers, Broadway, opera, et cetera. You know, people would sing opera out of their windows and that just like makes me cry because like you knew that, you know, other people are around you and, and that's music, you know, like bringing you together. And so I think, you know, that and the mental health, you know, kind of piece has really kind of like broken wide open during this time. And then I also think, you know, as much as we live and breathe and work in this industry and you know how many people sit behind a space, you don't truly know until you're sitting down and talking to all of these venues, like, you know, to see like, Baby's All Right in Brooklyn, you know, on a normal kind of like system would have like 40 employees full and part time. I mean, that's a tiny venue, you know, that, um, you know, that's supporting so many people or like Webster Hall um, in Manhattan, you know, on a show day, 80 to 100 people are, you know, are working that like underneath people's feet under the stages, like they have right. no idea as they're walking in and having that experience. And I think you know, that just like hits me really hard that, you know, hundreds and thousands upon thousands of people, you know, just in this one kind of segment of our, you know, industry have been hit so, so hard, you know. Yeah, it's, it's happened in, in waves and increments, right? Like at the beginning, I think a lot of venues were trying to hold on. Then some were like, okay, we've got to make a decision. We'd rather have you able to collect unemployment than have you sitting here wondering what's going to happen. And so over time, we've also watched people, groups that have held on to staff that have furloughed once and furloughed twice and furloughed a fourth you know, time. And it's devastating. You know, you look at a venue like Stubbs here in Austin, probably one of the oh, larger the venues that, oh, that I've personally interviewed. Yeah, they're amazing. You know, and, and they initially had to lay off over 100 staff. Then they oh. opened because they have food. So they're able to open. Then they were closed right. again. They opened again. And now I'm not sure if it's like the third time maybe now that they're they're finally in a reopening phase. Um, that yo-yo, imagine what that's like for management. Imagine what that's like for staff. It's And the, the retraining costs, all those startup costs, they reopen mm -hmm. those venues. It's not just open the doors and things are at 100%. It takes time. You got to do maintenance yep. work and yada, yada, yep. yada. All the new training, like Amber said, so they're having to hire people in completely new positions. Like there's a venue here in Austin called the Far Out Lounge. They're one of the few venues that's actually legally allowed to be open right now because they have three acres, they're socially distanced, their bar is based outside. And so they, we interviewed them last week, they have had to hire a person who is specifically focused only on walking people from the front door to their table and a person who is specifically focused on preventing people from dancing. Even if you live together, even if you've been married for 40 years, you're not allowed to dance with one another. And so there was actually a really funny story that they shared with us. There was an amazing Zydeco band apparently playing on stage the other week. And so in Austin, we have a really incredible thing, I think, which is that 
people of all ages come out to shows. There's, there's no ageism whatsoever present. And so they had a very diverse crowd here and they were told that they were not allowed to dance. So you had this woman and this man, she's like, well, he's my husband. Why can't I dance with him? And so (laughs) basically these people got up and they, they were so, you know, excited by the band that they got up and they walked to the parking lot next door and had this like dance in the parking lot. So it was very much like a, a, a sort of footloose uh, moment. And, you know, I want to be on the right side. Don't mess with Texas moment either. <laughs> yeah, really. yeah. Yeah. But yeah. it's like, we all want to be on the right side of this. And I think, you know, which is also like a huge responsibility that the venues, you know, take very, very seriously. They're not going to open until they know that it can be safe for people and to open at like limited capacity if you're not a place like the far out lounge where you have that space and you serve food and everything else it just it economically doesn't work you know Um, yeah which is you know who knows how long that's going to be for these places would love to hear a review again i know you touched on the cam the campaign and what you're doing but would love to hear about uh if you can you know, just provide information on the type of funds that you've been able to generate thus far. And one of the things I think is great about Bring Music Home is that there's going to be all of these different outlets uh, to bring light to this issue. And that, from what I can tell, it's going to be this ongoing campaign that I know you're starting to branch off into Europe and to go international with it. And in some ways, it's going to be this like evergreen campaign. So we'd love to hear about the exciting parts of the release so far, the schedule of you know, the, the different um, details of the campaign and then what has been the response thus far coming back in? Yeah, I mean, with the posters, I think it's been really, really amazing and so special because every single city we've worked with a poster artist who's created an original piece of work and you can buy these for 30 or $40, you know, and these are like some of the most badass artists, like an artist that, you know, does the cover of Coldplay's albums, you know, Young and Sick out of LA, um, you know, uh, Joey Mars out of Boston, who does stuff, you know, for the Grateful Dead and Aerosmith. Um, And so all of the sales for those posters, we have the last two of the 30 cities um, here in the US will be rolling out uh, at the end of this week on Friday. Um, And we're excited to kind of like relook at the tally, but when we last looked, I think we had raised over $20,000 just from those posters specifically to Neva's emergency relief fund. And so amazing. that's amazing. Cause it's like short term immediate impact that we can hand over, you know, those funds to them. And then uh, the podcast we're working through right now with the goal that that'll come out before the end of the year. So we're really excited to be doing that. And that'll be ongoing because there's so many stories to tell. Um, so we'll, you know, be looking at every city and highlighting different venues in each of those episodes, um, again, with a tie back to Neva. And then um, for the book, 30% of proceeds go directly to Neva. Um, and as long as we're able to kind of continue to kind of hone in on that and um, cost, you know, we want to be able to give even more. Um, and then the other thing that I think is like really special about the project too is, you know, this is all going to the independent venue association but um the partners that we have coming on board to help support this project you know this also supports all of the creatives working on it everybody that we've worked with 
has basically done this blood, sweat, and tears, um, but agreed to, you know, an honorarium fee, um, you know, as soon as we can provide it. And, you know, that's not much. It's nothing compared to the, what they would normally get, but it is supporting 50 plus creatives, you know, across the country. Um, and then the global editions will start to roll out um, early next year. We've got South Korea, we finished shooting. Um, so amazing venues in Seoul, um, kicking off in Australia and Europe. Um, and in those countries, you know, those proceeds will go to, you know, a NEVA type, you know, organization that's in those specific countries, which is really amazing. Um, and yeah, we're already starting to pull together the docu-series uh, video, which is mind-blowing how much we've done in six months. It's like a testament to the team, for sure, and, and everybody that we're working with. And Tamara, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. I feel like there's so much. There's so much, yeah. And I think, you know, I think you're right. We are simultaneously spinning a variety of plates. And the reason is because the story needs to be told now. Um, we didn't want to wait and, you know, hence why we've, we've pushed so hard over the past six months to capture, you know, 200 stories from, you know, individual venues. Um, yeah, a book out in under a year, what, eight months, um, a, you know, a podcast out in eight months. To Amber's point, the story with these venues doesn't end when the book is published and that's why the docuseries and the podcast are such an important piece of the storytelling process for us. We recognize that whether Congress does or doesn't step in, there's still a lot to uncover in terms of how that impacts the music economy and the ways that these individual people that we've now met in, in these cities and venues um, are going to react and respond and navigate um, these changes and adapt to them. And so we wanna to continue to go back in and have conversations with some of these key people and, um, and, and certainly continue to kind of, you know, keep uh keep our audience if you will uh up to speed about what's happening in their local communities um with these music venues that they love so dearly has this project at all made you rethink how the music industry organizes itself like what is the sort of speaking body of the industry for something like this because yeah it's a unique industry in the sense that well a lot of the arts people are working for themselves these are all you're all independent contractors, you're working for yourself, but um, has this impacted or, or what is that functioning voice that can advocate for the arts and, and for issues like yeah. this? I mean, I think it's shown that there's not really one functioning voice across like holistically for the arts. There's a lot of like amazing voices and organizations, but um, there isn't kind of like one uniting voice and, and force. And I think, you know, for the independent venues in an amazing way, Neva has become that. And, you know, everybody's working nonstop so hard, especially when you have so many shows that you have like on your calendar as a venue, you know, you're just kind of like churning, you know, in many ways. And so uh, I think one of the things that we've heard over and over and over um, is that, you know, these venues are so thankful to have an organization like Neva and actually to be talking to each other and bouncing ideas off of each other and like supporting each other. And so I think like that is something that I really hope and think will continue and, you know, and that communication will continue because a lot of these guys are also competitors, but I think now, you know, even more so than ever, 
everybody's realized like if one of us falls we all fall you know and we need to be a united front and we need to be sharing best practices um you know and supporting each other and so that's one of the things that i think you know neva has become in a lot of ways um and i think for fans they've probably you know just from like save our stages campaign and restart and everything else i think fans i hope have realized you know i know i've realized how much more we need to appreciate these places um, mm-hmm. and how excited people will be to like be able to go back. I mean, one of the things that I can't wait to hear, like, you know, the lights go down in a venue and a band walks out and a crowd just roars, you know, like I know. that gives me chills. That's the best you know? part. Well, you know, it's like that's, crazy. That's such a huge piece. It's such a huge piece. I think the other thing, right, is like, at least from my perspective is that, you know, the music industry has changed so much even in the 20 years that I've been working in it. When I started out working at a record label, we only sold CDs and vinyl, and then very quickly it became digital. A lot of record stores closed. I watched them close. They were my clients. I called them on the phone and sold them music. Many of them refused to go digital. Many of them refused to even have a website. And so unfortunately, a lot of them went away. Um, And that was a seismic shift in the music industry, right? And there's been a lot of things since then, right? We've seen the the onslaught of, you know, the festival uh, kind of, you know, mentality. Economy. Economy, that's the word, yeah. And how that has shifted and changed the way that we experience music, right? It's become commercialized to a point with with festivals that it's, it's, you know, no longer, um, at least in my opinion, something that's, that's super... Uh, intimate at all or or interesting and so these venues represent a way to continue the intimacy if you will between you and the musicians that you love and so um, I think that we're going to see some very significant changes along the way but I think to Amber's point about Neva you know if you look at what AIM which is the uh, Alliance of Independent uh, Musicians and A2IM is the U.S. operating body Um, AIM is from the UK you know, they were formed, I'm not sure how long ago, but it's been some time ago. And what they were able to do was become the United Voice and the United Front, much like Neva has started to become for the music venues. They did that for record labels, right? And for independents. And so Mm -hmm. what they were able to achieve over time was, you know, one voice to create a way for independent artists to gain uh, health insurance, to to be able to, uh, you know, get their taxes done more clearly, like so many different things that they were able to do as a united front. And so I do hope that that is one of the things that that Neva kind of moves towards. I'm sure that they have a lot that they're working on, obviously, um, getting Save Our Stages through is of primary importance right now. But I think, you know, that that idea that Amber mentioned, which is realizing that we're all in it together, we have to work together as one common aligned um front to make change happen um i think i think that's that's got to be a good thing ultimately um for the economy yeah and i really hope that like you know kind of out of out of this and out of something that's so devastating you know that is like a silver lining and that also this allows us to hopefully you know, slowly but surely like shift that economy in a much more positive way and also support the people, artists, the venue workers, you know, everyone from a mental health perspective. um, You know, it shed a light on a lot of things that I think we need to, we need to change sooner rather than later. Yeah, and so you guys can hear snoring. It's my bulldog. <laughs> I, I, I didn't want to say anything, Amber. I know that you have a baby, so I was like, "Is there? Am I? 
Am I like, hearing yeah. something? Is that a baby? Like, <laughs> is that a horse or is that a dog? That's and great. That's amazing. Puppy. Yeah, just snoring very, very loudly. <laughs> or if it was a vacuum, I didn't. I, I, I was thinking. I'm like, how am I going to describe this in the monologue? <laughs> it's um, my assistant Sheffield. She's a little French bulldog. She sleeps mostly and doesn't take good notes. So. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> now, now, question for both of you is, um, have you been doing any of the interviews yourself with some of the venue owners um, and, yeah. you know, artists? Yeah, all of them in Austin. Them. Yeah. yeah, I've been How- doing all of them in New York and Tamara the same in Austin. Mm-hmm. How are you balancing it? Because um, as someone who's having interviews with people like yourself, a lot of times, how can you not talk about these things? I mean, in some ways, the only reason why we are talking is because of this pandemic. But mm-hmm. curious to know from you um, how you're balancing talking about these things and not having these issues come across as overly serious so that it distracts from the message, but that you want to provide good information. So we'd love just to hear how those conversations have gone for you and how you're balancing yourself after you, mm-hmm. you know, hear these very heavy subjects. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, think it's always like a very open conversation, mm-hmm. you know, and we yeah. come at it from a positive way. And I do think that the serious stuff kind of just like weaves its way in and evolves in a really genuine way, because to your point, you know, we're all dealing with this, we're living in this, we're handling it both personally and professionally. And so um, they turn into very cathartic conversations uh, most of the time. And I think it's like really healthy for everybody, you know, to be just talking like this and, um, and also remembering the importance of why we work in this space, why, you know, that particular place is so important. You know, a lot of times we're talking about like the fondest memories of that place or like the quirky things that like no fan would know, you know, um the shows that like you know didn't happen but we're looking forward to that are getting rescheduled and then kind of weaving in all the seriousness of everything so i think it's actually been yes while like many times like you you know you want to cry like at certain points you know based on what you're talking about and who you're talking with because it's it's really emotional and um and it just hits home like so so close to home so directly um, and you feel like such empathy, I think, for each other that um, that that can be difficult. But most of the time I walk away, like personally, I walk away and I, I feel better because mm-hmm. we're we're talking about it. We're having the conversation and we're being really open with each other. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, it turns into a conversation and it feels less interview-esque. Mm-hmm. For many of the people that we've interviewed, at least here in Austin, I know this to be true across the country too. It, you know, when when the staff are coming through the doors, many of them haven't been there for months, so it's also oh. very emotional for them to walk into the space that they used to call home for the first time in months. What you know, um, but I think what's also been great is to hear the feedback from our you know forty plus collaborators around the country and what they've learned through this process and the way that these interviews have impacted them. You know, many of them knew some of these music venues and and the staff there for sure. But in most cases, these are brand new relationships that they're, you know, forging with these, you know, very culturally important spaces in their communities. And so the feedback that we've gotten from, from our teams out in the field is, has been overwhelming. It's been heartwarming, you know, to, to know that, 
they're frankly putting themselves at risk, which we've obviously been extremely cautious about during this time, right? Being safe has always been at the top of our pyramid. Yeah. Working this project remotely has been, of course, challenging. I haven't seen Amber once in six months, you know? Yeah, it's, in person, it's like, crazy, right? <laughs> so, it, you know, it's, it's a ton of Google calls and phone calls and Slack chats and emails and text messages and it's it's been crazy but i you know what i've heard from people in the field is that this has touched them deeply that having these conversations with people talking to them and getting to know the history of these spaces that maybe they've been to before or they've never been to before has really you know popped their brains open a little bit to better understand just how important these physical spaces are to the cities that they live in so i'm, I'm just so thrilled that you know in some small way you know, this project has been able to facilitate those types of relationships. And, yeah. and functionally, these are, these are pieces of real estate that, that are like museums. It's really no different. You, you put on a show and people go in there right. to, in this case, hear art um, and be part of a community and to go in with other concert goers. And, you know, some of these venues have, have, have been there for decades, you know, if not hundreds of years. And so um, in many ways that these are revered cultural institutions that hold physical presence in the yeah. towns and the cities that they're located in, very similar to museums or any type of revered institution. Yeah, I mean, and also to walk into places like that, like for example, I don't know, like the King's Theater, you know, in Flatwoods. Oh, it's the best. Like, yeah, like what an amazing, majestic place that's so beautiful when you walk inside it. And to, you know, you feel so tiny when you're in there with, especially with like not a whole crowd, you know, and you think about the history of that place and how it's currently, you know, helping the community even now, um, you know, opening its doors to set up things for everything from the census to food bank help to, you know, whatever. Um, and that that's like a place where, I don't know, I've seen the Lumineers, you know, the raconteurs watched Princess Bride, you know, like just all kinds of like crazy. So you get like this, lot, yeah, exactly. You get this variety, lot of like everything, you know, coming to you and and special memories, and yeah, they are in effect, um, you know, museums and pieces of real estate in many ways. But because I think it's music, it you know, kind of again, like it takes on deeper meaning for people in a lot of ways. Definitely. And I just have a few more questions. We're coming up on the hour here. I always like to try to end these conversations on a positive note, but um, how can people directly, everyday citizens like myself contribute? Is it contributing to NEVA, um, to that other independent organization that you mentioned that was it ATAM or, so how can people just get involved and contribute to the good cause? Yeah. yeah. Great question. I mean, I think the main way for us right now is to check out Bring Music Home on Instagram. We're keeping uh, everything, you know, up to date there. And right now people can purchase the posters that we mentioned with 100% of the proceeds going directly to Neva's Emergency Relief Fund. Um, awesome. You can go to our website to find those posters as well. Um, and that is where we will continue to keep people updated on the progress of the book, which will be pre-sale um, prior to Christmas and the podcast as well, which is very exciting. Yeah, so I think, you know, if you, um, I think one of the things that's really nice, like for people too, is if you buy one of these posters, you also get something really beautiful and tangible and a piece of art. 
um, and you're, you're helping a good cause. And then definitely like, please to everybody stay up to date on Neva and what's going on and you can donate directly there. Um, but I feel like those are probably like two of the, the main ways that we would say to support. Awesome. Okay. And, um, very fun question for you. What has been through everything that you've learned so far about these different venues? What is the one venue, a new venue that you're looking forward to going to from all of this research? Because mm. I've got one. I mean, for me, which is really interesting because it's not really, um, you know, my normal genre of focus, but I just am so endeared to the owners of this of this venue, um, St. Vitus in Greenpoint, which is- I've been there. Level. Yeah, <laughs> it's like so amazing. It's just, it blows my mind the support of the community and the fans for that, that venue and for those owners. And especially during this time, that was like a really heartwarming story for me to, to talk to them and to hear. And so I really like can't wait to go to a heavy metal show. Nice. <laughs> I did not expect you to say that. I love it. That's we awesome. got it. So when I first moved to New York, which was just a little over like two years and a month or so, um, I follow Nick Zinner, who's the guitarist for the Yeah Yeah Yeahs. Yeah. And yeah, and he plays in this band that's called like the rehearsal band for Black Sabbath or something like that. Okay. And um, it's a Black Sabbath cover band, but they go by like the rehearsal cover band of Black Sabbath. And mm -hmm. so that's when I went over there, St. Vitus and, and saw a show and it was probably around this time uh, a couple years ago. It's a very cool little venue. It's awesome. It's such a good spot. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I think for me, it's, it's a non-traditional music venue. It's actually um, Stax Records in Memphis, mm -hmm. Tennessee which is actually a museum that is dedicated to the history of the Stax record label, which was really, you know, kind of the birth of soul music and like yep. Booker T and um, Otis Redding got their start there, for example. And so we actually did an interview at Stax with um, our photographer, Lawrence Matthews in Memphis. And um, it just, it's those spaces hold energy all spaces hold energy, right? But that one in particular, like the soul and the history there. Plus I have never truly explored Memphis. So that's the one that I'm most excited to go to. And they host like small shows and, and concerts there as well. So yeah. I love it. Yeah, I've been there. I've, I've been to that museum. Have? It's cool. It's very awesome. cool. Yeah, I went to Memphis probably seven, eight years ago, um, but it's a very cool museum. Uh, mine is Kane's Ballroom in Tulsa. Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah, cool. Kane's yeah. is so cool. I mean, that's a crazy history. Yeah, everyone that I know absolutely loves that venue. Like, mm. not know, but people that I follow, like Robert Plant and Jack White, yeah. I know, loves playing there. Um, even Damon Albarn did a random tour through the Southwest and remarked on how awesome that venue is. So I just, I've been wanting to make the pilgrimage out there for a while. So I got to hit it up. Well, yeah, you definitely do. And it's owned by two brothers. It's like, the story is amazing. Like, I'm really excited for us to share all of these stories. And that one definitely is a, that's a special place for sure. I'm, look, I'm looking forward to hearing it. Okay. And then what has been your most listened to album that's come out in the COVID era of the last six months? Oh, I know mine, like hands down, uh, Dreamland, Glass Animals. 
Nice. Yeah, I could just listen. I could literally listen to that album all day, every day. It's so good. And it just like, it's actually about a lot of like really, you know, some of it's kind of like, you know, it's just about like life and growing up and like a little bit of it is sad, but it's like so good and cathartic. That's awesome. Um, mine would be Karangbin. Uh, they're one of the most difficult to pronounce bands out there right now, but uh, really amazing, like Thai infused rock and roll Karangbin. And the new album is mm -hmm. called Mordecai, which came out uh, a couple months ago. So yeah, it's just like, it's chill, it's down tempo, um, and just beautiful harmonies and guitar melodies. And it's just been a really nice reprieve. It feels like a taste of summer when effectively we all missed out on summer. So it's, right. yeah. So true. <laughs> and they're, they're an awesome bass band, right? Um, they're actually from Houston. Um, okay. Right now the band is spread out all over the country. And as a matter of fact, we're set to do an interview with one of the band members um, in New York coming up in the next few yeah, weeks. Yeah, we're really excited. Awesome, that'll be cool. They were the backing band on this uh, great track by it was the last track on the J Electronica album, um, the really? one that he did. Yeah, so he's a, a rapper from New Orleans. He's on, he's on uh, Jay-Z's record label, I believe. And mm -hmm. basically this J Electronica album, he's a really fascinating character because he was discovered, I think like a decade plus ago and put out this mixtape of him rapping to, um, the soundtrack from uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And he put it out like on SoundCloud yeah. and he got discovered. Yeah, he got discovered. And, and I think that, you know, Jay-Z signed him years ago and then it took him forever to finally put out this album. Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, eight to 10 years or however long later, he finally dropped this album. And it's essentially, it's billed as a Jay Electronica album, but it's essentially a, a, a duet album with Jay-Z. And is it, I never know how to pronounce it, Krongbin? Karangdin, yeah. Mm -hmm. Karangdin. They did the backing track for the last song. So it's a cool, very chill uh, closing song. That's very cool. Love that. Yeah. Nice. Um, mine, mine, it's kind of surprising, um, but it's Taylor Swift folklore. Oh, it's good. It's a very it, good album. Yeah. If you like The National, whom I love, if you like The National, the National, then you'll love this album because... Yeah, it's it's her it's her basically in my head singing over national tracks. I'm like, you can't go wrong there. <laughs> I, I haven't heard it yet, admittedly. It really good. You're right. Cool. <laughs> so I, I have a controversial hot take. There's I never realized how lyrically dense her music was, um, but I actually made like a remix of it where I switched up the song order and then just focused on the songs by Aaron Dresner and. <laughs> I think it plays. No offense to the other songs, but it. Uh, I'm pretty proud of this remix, actually. I love it. I want to hear this. Well, I'll share with you, uh, ladies, after. Well, that's all I got for you. Um, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, thank you to Noah for for putting us in touch. Hey, and totally. <laughs> hope this was fun. I think that what you're doing is amazing, and honestly, I, I look forward to you know hearing and seeing all these great pictures of these venues because I think they're just going to be it's going to be really something to focus on and will help us feel better and will provide that bombing effect that you know music lovers we all need 
Thank you so thank much. You. Yeah, and thank you for, for spending the time. So it was really fun and really lovely. Yeah, we appreciate cool. it so much. All right.